word. I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in the state and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word, we celebrate Beat Generation writer Jack Kerouac, who died 50 years ago this month, and whose legendary novel On the Road, which encapsulated the Beat Generation, was published 62 years ago in September. Jack, uh, got a couple of square questions, but I think the answer would be interesting. How long did it take you to write On the Road? Three weeks. Three weeks? That's amazing. How long were you on the road itself? Seven years. Plus, we'll catch up with modern beat writer P.W. Covington from Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's on the road committing poetry. As an artist, your job is to contradict and go in different directions than the prevailing flow of society. And we'll hear an inspiring Arizona road story as we meet Carlos Acido, who plans to bike from Camp Verde to New Mexico next year. Because the person who made my first prosthetic is there, so I'm going to go visit her. But first... Lesson 1. Basic Hip. Basic to hip is the concept of digging, to dig. Mr. Geetz Romo, how would you define dig? Well, you know, man, like when you dig something. <laughs> well, yes, but... But dig, baby. It's like, you know, when you dig some chick or some cat. You know, when you pick up on something, you dig it, you dig. To dig, then, would mean to like, to understand, or to appreciate. Dig. It's like... No, it's more like uh, in music, you dig? You know what is a quarter tone? Like you get a note in there between C and C sharp, and that's its own sound, you know? I mean, you can't call it C because it isn't. That's like dig. Dig means dig. Like if you don't dig and you say dig, I dig where you're at. Like I'm the wrong cat, it's the wrong word. Dig? Ladies and gentlemen... Now you begin to see one of our problems with the hip language. Each hip word or phrase carries with it an implication of the speaker's background and his involvement in hip society. In other words, the phrase, I dig, not only means I understand, but I am a special sort of person who understands in a very special way. Yeah, that is exactly what I said. In other words, I'm saying, I am hip. Dig yourself, baby. You got a way to go. That track was from How to Speak Hip a comedy album written and performed by Del Close and John Brent and released by Mercury Records in 1959. One of the characteristics of the Beat Generation and On the Road was the use of black vernacular of the time by white writers like Jack Kerouac. We'll explore this a bit further with my first guest, Arizona State University Assistant Professor of Literature Brian Goodman. He teaches courses on U.S. literature and culture, as well as Jewish-American writing and human rights. He's currently writing a book about literary dissent during the Cold War, and there's a chapter in the work that focuses on the beats and their influences behind the Iron Curtain. Professor Goodman joined me recently at the KJZZ studios in Tempe, and I began our discussion by asking him about where his research took him. One thing that scholars of the beats have been um, discovering more and more is the influence of these writers beyond U.S. borders. And sometimes that's sort of a belated story. You know, it's, you, know, you have uh, kind of similar kinds of literary movements popping up around the world in the decades following the 50s. In my research, I was focused mostly on Prague and sort of the proto-dissident movements of the you know, 1960s and how they were influenced by a visit from Allen Ginsberg. But it's a much wider story about sort of how American culture was being translated and explained to Soviet bloc audiences. They were mad for this stuff. They'd line up around the block to try to get a hold of these translations when they came out. And you use an interesting term there, mad. Yeah. We don't mean mad in terms of crazy, but mad is used as kind of... Uh, I guess, a substitution for excitement. Would that be fair to yeah, say? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Absolutely. Right. So one of the biggest reasons why we wanted to talk to you, Brian, is because this is the 50th anniversary this month of the passing of Jack Kerouac, uh, whom many have called the father of the beats. I think he probably hated that from what I have read about him. <laughs> and then last month was actually the 62nd anniversary of the publication of On the Road, sort of the seminal work, if you will, of this beat generation movement. I want to go back to that term, uh, beat and beat generation. Uh, as far as I know, it was actually coined by a reporter 
the indication that I get is that Kerouac did not like that term. Do I have my facts correct on that? You know, the thing with the beats is there are layers and layers of mythology. There are some kind of different stories we get about the origin of the term beat. As far as I can tell, the actual origins of the term come from black vernacular, from, you know, jive language. And it makes a lot of sense that figures like Kerouac and the other uh, people hanging out in New York City in the 40s and 50s, they started to kind of adopt some of this lingo. This is, I think, where Kerouac starts hearing the word beat being used by some of his friends in the sort of subterranean New York scene. I have also heard that Kerouac described beat being actually short for the word beatitude, as in the Bible. As far as those layers of mythology, that's a really interesting way to describe the beat generation. There is just so much out there. So I wonder what makes Jack Kerouac significant now, 50 years from his death? Do you think that he is still relevant? And if so, why? I came across this quotation that from Allen Ginsberg, walking on water wasn't built in a day. And actually, this is something he attributes to Kerouac saying, and, and this is when he's taking a pilgrimage to Kerouac's grave in Lowell, Massachusetts in 1976. And I think that really gets at something important, which is we can think about the beat movement as a very specific historical cultural movement in the 1940s, 50s, influencing the 60s counterculture. But we can also think about the afterlives of these novels and works of literature as they kind of circulate around the world during the Cold War and beyond. And when we take that wider view, I think that the significance of the beats today is enormous. Uh, Their influence on any number of literary movements, not just in the United States, but in Latin America, in East Central Europe, in East Asia. There's just countless examples that we can turn to. And so I think if we think transnationally, the beats are as important as they've ever been. You mentioned legendary poet Allen Ginsberg, uh, who has a plethora of work available. You know, Alan was extremely instrumental in getting publishers interested in Jack Kerouac's work in the first place. Jack hated that part of writing. So Alan was very instrumental in editing his work, number one. And when you think about a work like On the Road, I don't know if you've actually seen, you know, in the flesh, the original scroll that it was written on. But for folks who don't know, it was written on a teletype reel. And if they don't know what teletype reel is, just kind of imagine a paper towel roll. So sort of something that's kind of unending. But the scroll itself had very little punctuation and almost no paragraph in dense. Have you had time to actually study the differences between the original teletype roll and what we have seen in print now? I love the original scroll, maybe because I've looked at the novel a few too many times. When I think it was Viking published the original scroll on the 50th anniversary of On the Road, that was a really exciting moment for those of us who study the beats. There's a lot to kind of say about the original scroll. The most important thing is that the composition of the original scroll is at the heart of beat mythology, right? It's this myth about Kerouac that in about three weeks, he sat down and, you know, supposedly on Benzedrine sits and hammers out 120 feet of this manuscript, all in one kind of exuberant rush. Now, there's truth to that, but we should also acknowledge that he'd been planning to write a road novel since the mid-1940s, before he even got on the road. And he'd sketched out lots of drafts, uh, different versions of the manuscript, some that spun off into other novels he later published. And so when he sat down to write the original scroll, in fact, he was working from notes. He had kind of plotted out what he wanted to happen. And after he was finished, he spent about six years revising the manuscript in order to get it into shape to publish, you know, adding punctuation, substituting um, real names for fictional characters to give legal cover. That was, you know, the lawyers at Viking insisted on that. And there were also some examples of uh, self-censorship. You know, one of the most famous passages in the novel early in the first chapter, a line was cut that made a reference to the sort of sexual relationship between um, Neil Cassidy and Allen Ginsberg in those early days. And that line had to be kind of excised to make the manuscript more acceptable for publication. We have to remember at this point in time in the history of the United States, homosexuality was actually illegal. Yeah, I mean, it was a really dangerous situation for some of these young writers. And going back to the mythology of the origins of the beat, 
generation. There was a lot going on in the lives of these young students, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac at Columbia, from the kind of maybe we don't make a big deal of it, they you know threatened with expulsion, things like that, but to the point where they were also got into trouble with the law a few times because of their associations with other people in New York City who were a part of sort of the underground culture there was sort of a porous boundary between the underground culture of the Greenwich Village. One of the things that you mentioned was the fact that he did actually, you know, spend time revising this and trying to get it into a format that publishers would accept. And and so then once it becomes published, and I I have the feeling based on my knowledge of his influences, Jack London specifically, uh, Thomas Wolfe, Look Homeward Angel, that he maybe as much as he hated the the process of publishing, I think he saw himself as trying to be amongst those members of the literary canon that were already extant. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one thing um, that maybe gets overstated is the sense that um, the Beats were this radical break with literary tradition. In fact, these are really well-read guys. And as a result, they really wanted to be kind of, maybe if they weren't as concerned with the commercial success of their fiction, although they did care about that, they had to support themselves. They were very concerned about being understood to be a part of this, especially um, young American literary tradition that was um, making a break with European forms of modern modernism. But even in those cases, you know, Kerouac loved Dostoevsky. He loved, you know, he had ambivalent feelings towards Eliot. Uh, but they were always reading and thinking about these earlier writers and trying to find ways of extending their project, but also breaking with their project. You know, probably the most important way that Kerouac breaks with the modernists is he's less interested in being ironic and much more interested in sincerity, which is a kind of a, a new mode of writing in the post-war moment. And in some ways, I would even say a precursor to what we call new journalism, which is where you really insert your own self into the writing, per se, exemplars of which are Tom Wolfe later on, um, and then, of course, Hunter S. Thompson. Um, Absolutely. You know, when this book was published and reviews start coming out, another famous writer, Truman Capote, famously calls it typewriting, yeah. not writing. So, of course, you're always going to have your critics. How long did it take for On the Road to Catch Fire with the public? Just quickly to say that, you know, we can take that as an insult from Capote, but it, it could also be a compliment, right? right. Um, the Beats really wanted to draw attention to the process of writing itself. And I think that there's a deliberate sense in which we get the actual act of writing is central to the project of the Beats. In terms of when they kind of catch on, well, you know, depends on when you consider the On, on the Road having been uh, released into the world. It was passed around underground for a number of years and rumors of it kind of spread among uh, the New York literary scene before it was published. When it was finally published in 1957, it almost immediately became a bestseller and they had to publish a new edition pretty quickly. That said, the reviews were largely negative with one important exception. There was a very positive um, review in the New York Times that uh, made a comparison between Kerouac and Hemingway, uh, the lost generation and the beat generation on the road as a sort of corollary to the sun also rises. Um, But uh, much more uh, significantly during the period, uh, the literary establishment sort of frowned on this project. And uh, there's no better uh, example of a kind of rival kind of trying to take down the beats than Norman Podhoritz, the future neoconservative, as a young kind of writer in New York, wrote an essay called The Know-Nothing Bohemians. That really is a, is a, it's wonderful to read now. Uh, It's a takedown of Kerouac and Ginsburg. And, you know, some of the lines still stick. Well, and speaking of famous conservatives, I mean, I can remember that interview with William F. Buckley. Jack's on there, and unfortunately, he's just trashed. Yeah. Uh, Tragically, his alcoholism is what led to his death. And he took on Buckley, but I don't think he did himself any favors in that particular interview. As far as the language of the Beat Generation, you indicated earlier on, you know, that it was connected to African-American culture, uh, certainly jazz culture. I think that, you know, as younger folks, these guys from the Beat Generation were much more interested in a life beyond the white picket fence and the two point whatever five children and the, you know, classic American family sense of America, for instance. But on the other end of it, modern scholars take a look at that and bring up things like cultural appropriation, for instance, you know, literally taking another culture's art language and using it for their own benefit. 
How do you talk about that, and then where do you sort of sit with respect to that notion? You know, for me, it's a starting point. It's a way in. The question of cultural appropriation and on the road shouldn't be a way of kind of shutting down discussion of the novel. In fact, I think it's a way of opening up new interpretations of the novel and also especially its, uh, you know, place in the wider culture of the time. So uh, in particular, I think as scholars are especially more attuned to, to sort of this category of whiteness, we can look back at uh, the Beats as a great example of literary and cultural response to this moment in mid-century America when the definition of what it meant to be white was changing. So uh, Kerouac is a French-Canadian by family, ancestry. Uh, he grows up speaking French in his household. He's a Catholic. Ginsburg is obviously uh, you know, raised in a, a Jewish family um, in New York City. And when they're born, they're considered to be somehow off-white, right? You know, they're they're not quite accepted into the cultural mainstream of the United States. But by mid-century, after the Second World War, those ethnic groups are considered more and more white. And so for a writer like Kerouac to try to claim a marginal position and the sort of authenticity and the kind of authority to dissent that comes with that marginal position. He has to turn to people of color, to jazz. Again, Podhoretz was already criticizing him for this in 1958. And I think the charge is completely valid. And I think at the same time, it kind of helps us understand some of the motivations that the Beats had in terms of trying to take a look at uh, cultures outside the mainstream of white suburban America. Feminist scholars have also taken issue with the Beats and on the road, and for good reason. How do you consider that when you're teaching on the road, the Beats, whatnot? To be honest, it's a little frustrating. I mean, so here's the truth. You know, the Beats were all about kind of obliterating these binaries, all these binaries of the Cold War era, binaries between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, for instance, politically, binaries between art and literature, sexual binaries, right? They were outspoken, especially Ginsburg, about homosexuality during a period when that was very dangerous. But one of the binaries that they didn't seem as interested in breaking down was gender. Instead, Kerouac's project was much more about redefining masculinity. He didn't have the kind of male role models in his life that he was seeking. And so he creates a new masculine archetype in On the Road, especially through the character of Dean Moriarty. You know, we're still living in that paradigm, I'd argue. I think the sort of form of American masculinity that's established during this period by texts like On the Road, we're still living with that. And so I think it's really important to read this text from the perspective of gender. In terms of women in the novel, there's no question... It's an upsetting lack of curiosity from from Kerouac about the female characters. To use the metaphor, it's like he's in a speeding car looking out the window. And, you know, there's this kind of passionate but very fleeting glance at these female characters in the novel. And as a result, you have a whole wave of kind of memoirs come out in later decades from the female participants of the beat movement. Here I'm thinking of Joyce Johnson or Hetty Jones. Really great books that I'd recommend to anybody who's interested in the beats. And I think more and more we're paying more attention to some of the female beats, better known ones including include Diane De Palma and Waldman. And so I think that nowadays when we teach the beats, we can kind of draw on a much wider corpus of text in order to kind of give a more full and balanced portrait of the period. And so in that teaching, then they, they still are relevant. I mean, we don't stop teaching Mark Twain, for instance, just because we object to the language and characterizations that are used. My experience with On the Road, I can remember reading it literally on a road trip. That was the first time I ever – it was my first college road trip, and, you know, I really knew not much. Uh, The only kind of parallel or connection that I had with the term beatnik was remembering my dad's love of Dobie Gillis (laughs) uh, from his own childhood, which uh, folks who don't know Dobie Gillis, you can find plenty of examples. But, you know, it was a caricature of – the beat generation, to put it bluntly. Do you remember the first time that you read On the Road and what it did for you? Yeah, I was actually recently, we, we moved into a new house, right? Um, leaving behind my beat past to be a you know suburban middle class uh, <laughs> college professor. Uh, but I was unpacking some of my old papers and I found a paper I'd written about On the Road back in high school. And so that was my first encounter with the text. And I do think it is a book best encountered when you're young. You know, it kicked off a whole period of kind of road trip adventures and misadventures in my own misspent youth. And, you know, I think I think it sent me in a in a fun direction. I mean, Dharma Bums is still my favorite novel by Kerouac, uh, in part because of its kind of celebration of that entire lifestyle in a way that I think is 
maybe aged even better than on the road. And I, you know, recommend that to all the young people out there kind of interested in in finding safe ways to bum around the United States. <laughs> well, you also bring up a good point that uh, although he is best known for On the Road, he wrote many wonderful books. A lot of people don't even know that Kerouac was also an avid poet. So I think Dharma Bums is probably the favorite of a lot of readers who know more about Jack Kerouac's work. Brian Goodman with ASU, I appreciate you coming in and giving us some background on Jack Kerouac, uh, specifically on the road and the beats at large. Thanks so much for coming to Word. Thanks for having me. You can find more information about Professor Goodman's work by visiting our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. Your mornings can define the rest of your entire day. Find the $5 you forgot about in your pocket. That might be a good day. Get stuck in a traffic mess on the 51, probably going to be a bad one. But when you begin your day with Morning Edition, you start fully awake with the latest and most important news to prepare you for whatever comes next. Take control of your day and listen to Morning Edition from 5 until 9 on KJZZ 91.5. Count Me In. It's a way for you to financially support the award-winning reporting, entertainment, and music you hear on KJZZ. Just go to countmein.kjzz.org. Now, back to the Bullwinkle Show. And here, with his bird's eye view and a brain to match, is Mr. Know-It-All. Our subject for today is how to be a beatnik. Some people think the beatnik is merely a bum with sunglasses, but he is more than that. Though not much. The first step in becoming a beatnik is to grow a beard. This can be a long process, particularly if you're a girl. Clothing-wise, we should remember this important rule. The well-dressed beatnik is seldom neatnik. Beatniks hang out in unemployment lines, health food stores, but most of all in coffee houses. Beatnik joints have lots of atmosphere, but it's usually too dark to see it. Coffee, tea, or goat's milk? Uh, coffee, I guess. Coffee we got. What kind? The see. Espresso, 75 cents. Cappuccino, 85. Sanko, 50. Refill, 25. Think I'll have some that they refill. Why don't you try Cafe Minuto? Cafe Minuto? What's that? Instant coffee. Special for you I make with dirty water. <laughs> How is? Terrible. Good. Should taste bad to last draft. The beatnik is often fond of reading poetry to jazz. Thusly, Mary had a swinging lamb. He followed her to school. She hocked his wool for a bongo drum, and man, that lamb was cool. Thank you, Mr. Norlon. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. What you just heard was a famous segment from the Bullwinkle Show called Mr. Know-It-All. The show aired from 1961 to 1964 on the NBC and ABC television networks. According to Wikipedia, the term beatnik was a media stereotype prevalent through the 1950s to the mid-1960s that displayed the more superficial aspects of the beat generation literary movement of the 1950s. Elements of the beatnik trope included pseudo-intellectualism, drug use, and a cartoonish depiction of real-life people along with the spiritual quest of Jack Kerouac's autobiographical fiction. In 1957, Kerouac's novel On the Road was published, and in 1959, he teamed up with Steve Allen to produce an album entitled Poetry for the Beat Generation. The album was produced by Bob Thiele. Here's Jack reading the ending of his novel On the Road, while accompanied by Steve on piano before a live studio audience in November of that year. Jack talks about his writing process and the reason for using a teletype role, as well as his own definition of the word beat. In the early 1950s, nation recognized in its midst a social movement called uh, Beat Generation. A novel titled On the Road became a bestseller, and its author, Jack Kerouac, became a celebrity, partly because he'd written a powerful and successful book, and partly because he uh, seemed to be the embodiment of this new generation. Jack and I made a uh, 
an album together a few months back in which I played uh, background piano for his poetry reading. And at that time, I made a note to book him on the show because I thought you would enjoy meeting him. So here he is, Jack Kerouac. Jack told me a little earlier he was nervous. Are you nervous now? No? Good. Jack, I've uh, got a couple of square questions, but I think the answer would be interesting. How long did it take you to write On the Road? Three weeks. How many? Three weeks. Three weeks? Jeez, that's amazing. How long were you on the road itself? Seven years. Seven years. Yeah, I was on the road once for three weeks, and it took me seven years to write about it. <laughs> the other way around. I've heard that you write so fast that you don't like to use uh, regular typing paper, but instead you prefer to use one big, long roll of paper. Is that true? Yeah. When I write narrative novels, and I want to change my narrative thought, I keep going. You don't want to change the pages at the end, you mean? A hundred foot long teletype paper. Oh, teletype rolls. Where do you get them? Huh? Where do you get the paper? Yeah, teletype paper. Where do you get it? In a very good stationery store. I see. When I write my symbolistic, serious, impressionistic novels, I write them in pencil. Oh, yeah? I've seen a lot of your poetry written in pencil, but I didn't realize that's how you worked on the prose stuff. For narrative, uh, it's good. Yeah, go I got a, a, the most hard question of all, but everybody always puts it to you, I'm sure. I mean, because everybody always puts it to you. How would you define the word beat? <laughs> I don't mean why not time, I mean... Really, is there... Well, sympathetic. Sympathetic? All right, I ask. Well, about this point, actually, we plan to have Jack read some poetry. And while looking again through his book the other day, it struck me, uh, it occurred to me all over again, that his prose is extremely uh, poetic. I think it's, it's probably more poetic than that. Who else writes uh, poetic type prose? Thomas Wolfe, I guess. Walt Whitman. Uh-huh. <laughs> in Specimen Days. Walt Whitman in Specimen Days. I, see, I thought you were putting me on there for a minute. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll look into that. And right now, we'll look into uh, Jack Kerouac's On the Road, and, and he'll uh, lay a little on you. You know, you don't even have to buy these pages. I'll try. I'll play the blues as we did in the thing, and we'll see how it works out. Well, a lot of people have asked me why did I write that book or any book. All the stories I wrote were true, because I believed in what I saw. I was traveling west one time at the junction of the state line of Colorado. It's arid western one. The state line of poor Utah, I saw in the clouds huge and massed above the fiery golden desert of Evenfall, a great image of God with forefinger pointed straight at me through halos and rolls and gold folds that were like the existence of a gleaming spear in his right hand which saith, come on boy, go thou across the ground, go moan for man, go moan, go groan, go groan alone, go roll your bones alone. Go thou and be little beneath my sight. Go thou and be minute as seed in the pod. Go thou, go thou, die hence. And of this world, report you well and truly. Anyway, I wrote the book because we're all gonna die. In the loneliness of my life, my father dead, my brother dead, my mother far away, my sister and my wife far away. Nothing here but my own tragic hands that once were guarded by a world sweet attention that now are left to guide and disappear their own way into the common dark of all our death sleeping in me raw bed alone and stupid with just this one pride and consolation my heart broke in a general despair and opened up inwards to the Lord I made a supplication in this dream so in the last page of On the Road, I describe how the hero, Dean Moriarty, has come to see me all the way from the West Coast just for a day or two. We've just been back and forth across the country several times in cars, and now our adventures are over. We're still great friends, but we have to go into later phases of our lives. So there he goes, Dean Moriarty, ragged in the moth-eaten overcoat he brought specially for the freezing temperatures of the East. Walking off alone, and last I saw him, he rounded the corner of 7th Avenue eyes on the street ahead and bent to it again. Gone. So, in America, when the sun goes down, and I sit on the old broken down river pier watching the long, long skies over New Jersey, 
and sense all that raw land that rolls in one unbelievable huge bulge over to the west coast, and all that road going, and all the people dreaming in the immensity of it. And in Iowa, I know by now that children must be crying in the land where they let the children cry. And tonight the stars will be out, and don't you know that God is Pooh Bear? The evening star must be drooping and shedding her sparkler dims on the prairie, which is just before the coming of complete night that blesses the earth, darkens all the rivers, cups the peaks, and folds the final shore in. Nobody, nobody knows what's going to happen to anybody besides the forlorn rags of growing old. Think of Dean Moriarty, I even think of old Dean Moriarty, the father we never found. Think of Dean Moriarty, I think of Dean Moriarty. Yeah, wow, Jack, thank you very much. Jack Carraway, it's a kick. That recording was taken from the Steve Allen Plymouth Show, originally broadcast Monday, November 16th, 1959, at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on NBC. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. You know how a friend calls you to catch up and you talk about the weekend? You talk about work, family, maybe the TV show you've got to watch. By the time you hang up, you're filled in on the important news and maybe a little fun stuff as well. There's a lot going on. And All Things Considered is on when you need to hear a little bit of everything. It's this afternoon from 3 until 6 on KJZZ 91.5. Football season is here, and that means tailgating time. If your tailgate doesn't function like it used to, consider donating that SUV or pickup to the KJZZ Vehicle Donation Program and support the programs you love. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Beat Generation writers continue to inspire contemporary artists like P.W. Covington, whose poetry and prose undeniably tips its hat to beat influences. Covington frequently travels from his casita in Albuquerque, New Mexico, to, quote, commit poetry. We caught up with him on the phone and on the road as he prepared for a reading in Houston. I was named a jury poet at the Houston Poetry Fest, and uh, it was great um, to get over here and to read at the University of Houston. From here, I'm going to be going on to... uh, down to the coast, hang out for a few days with some friends, and drop in on a reading in Rockport, Texas. It's a little artist community there on the, the coastal bend of Texas. And then uh, I'll be driving all the way through the desert, and the next night I'll be reading in El Paso before I get to go home. <laughs> and uh, I think that's about it for this year. Things kind of wind down as the winter months approach, and that's fine with me. I can just sit in my casino in front of my fire and catch up on reading and writing. And hang out with Chesty, which we should mention is your intrepid bulldog, right? Chesty the bulldog is a rock star. Um, I've got, uh, he's, he's, he's being babysat in El Paso um, while I'm on this little jaunt, but quite often he travels with me, and I don't know too many people that that uh, follow me around that uh, haven't become just as good or better friends with Chesty than I know <laughs> That's great. For, you know, folks who are just casual consumers, if you will, of poetry, maybe they don't understand what it means to be a juried poet. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about what that meant to you. It was kind of a big deal. To me. I mean, I, for me personally, emotionally it was, because I lived in Texas for a number of years, and uh, I just couldn't find that audience. I just couldn't connect with a lot of the folks that lived in this part of the country, and uh, that put me, by definition, on the road a lot mostly out west, but a jury system is where um, basically they take a look at all the submissions and then choose the folks they want at the festival, and um, it was good to see that invitation because it never happened when I lived here. (laughs) What do you think might have changed about your either circumstances or the mindset of those who are putting on this particular poetry festival? I really wouldn't want to even guess at that because it's you know it's a blind submission process nobody knows who they're reading when they read it and um, writing you know it's so subjective when you pick up a piece you can love something and people that you get along with may not like it you know um, 
it's community in any art form. Writing is especially subjective. The poems that were selected that you read, what was some of the subject matter of those poems? You know, you, you do this for a while, and, and as a performer, you have those pieces that you know you can go to. And I pulled out some of my reliable ones, the ones that uh, I like to move around a lot. I'm a very animated reader, and um, I have a piece called It's Time to Write a Poem, which makes a great first piece for a set. And it it draws the audience in. Um, I read another one dedicated to a friend of mine that lives down in the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas, who's just very instrumental in building community down there. And the piece that was selected for uh, the festival and for the uh, the anthology here was a piece I wrote on tour earlier this year in Chicago about meeting up with a friend that I hadn't seen in most of a decade. And... Um, her sharing some news with me about uh, a cancer diagnosis. And um, my mom passed away last year and a half ago or so um, from cancer herself. So it was uh, kind of tugging on a little hard strings there, but that's the kind of thing that a lot of people can relate to. And it's just part of growing up. It's part of getting older when uh, we start having friends or we start dealing with these issues ourselves. One of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you is because last month in September was actually the 62nd anniversary of On the Road, written right, by Jack Kerouac. Right. And this month, on October 21st, is the 50th anniversary of his passing. And I, I always am surprised about the longevity of a book that was written that long ago, often literature just in general. But I thought it would be kind of appropriate to catch up with somebody who's on the road. Full disclosure, I first met you via social media. And one of the things that first attracted me to what you do as a poet is what you call committing poetry. Where did you come up with that phrase and what does it mean beyond the obvious? It's a line in a poem that I wrote. It's a line in that uh, it's time to commit poetry piece. And this is inspired by the Beats, inspired by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who published a collection of poetry back decades ago called Poetry as Insurgent Art. And I think that not just our times and our climates, but all times and all climates, the willingness and the bravery involved in standing up and speaking out, speaking your mind, sharing your world with others is akin to the commission of, of some kind of insurgent activity. As an artist, your, your job is to uh, contradict and uh, go in different directions than the, than the prevailing flow of society. Um, you know, if, if what you're doing is loved by everyone everywhere, that's effective marketing. That's not creating art. You know, I really subscribe to that whole concept of um, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. I think that that's a legacy that we have in American letters that maybe wasn't started by, but was definitely amplified by the beats, writers like Jack Kerouac and and Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence Ferlinghetti and, and these cats. Amazingly, Ferlinghetti is still with us. I believe he just celebrated yeah. his 100th birthday. Uh, and of course, Fairling Getty is the person who started City Lights Books in San Francisco, just an iconic bookstore. Kerouac mentions in his own writing this idea about first thought, best thought. And he was an editor's nightmare as a result of that. <laughs> One of the things that I remark about was that notion of first thought, best thought does lend itself to sort of a, a vibrancy in the voice. Uh, was that inspirational to you in your own particular writing? And how do you deal with the editing process knowing yourself that this is going to go through somebody's eyes? And if I expect publication, I might need to be open to change, for instance. I think too much has been made of the first thought, best thought thing. That may be true if what we're dealing with is thoughts. But if you're trying to communicate that to an audience, you have to present it in a way that your audience can receive it. Um, that's whether you're presenting it on stage or whether you're presenting it on a page. Um, it's great and, and it's vital um, to sit down and to get those ideas onto paper or recorded in some way, as Kerouac did with the scroll. 
you know, lock himself in and start pounding this thing out. And it wasn't the only project he did that way. Um, a couple of his books were written that way. But before they got out and before they became the legends that they are now and remain, yeah, they were edited. It, there's there's no magic to any of this. There's talent and then there's craft. You know, you, you have the talent, hopefully, but you have to develop the craft. And uh, Kerouac wasn't a uh, magician. He was, he was a writer. And um, a lot of editing happened and, and a lot of revisions happened. And we can see that with all the different versions. Go into a bookstore and, and look for On the Road and you'll right. find four or five different editions available in different stages of the manuscript. I think there are probably still a lot of people that did not realize that besides being a novelist, Kerouac, of course, he was a diarist, a journalist, if you will, in the truest sense of the form. But he was also a poet, wrote many haiku, oh, yeah. uh, many poems yeah. in, in general. You know, one of the things that he's famous for saying is, I had nothing to offer anybody except my own confusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've always loved that sentiment. I sometimes think that's the reason why creatives put work out. It's like, well, I didn't. I've got this idea in my head, you know, whether it be a painting, a poem, a novel, short story, and I'm I'm just confused about this, so I'm just going to try to to work it out. Not that you ever come to find out what it all means, but you put it out there for consumption, (laughs) if you will, right? And and so I was sort of wondering in your writing experience, particularly with poetry, do you explore that notion that Jack talked about with his own confusion? What does it do as an outlet for you? Oftentimes that's how it starts, is I'll encounter something or be exposed to something that doesn't make sense to me, that I, I just can't wrap my head around. And I will, I'll sit down and, and I'll ask myself, I'll ask my journal, you know, um, this is what I observed. You're telling me this is coming from, and I can't match that up right now. So let's explore every possible angle on this thing. And um, see what resonates and see, see what we keep and see what makes it into that final draft or not. And I think as readers, we do the same thing because uh, writing is a form of communication, you know, or it better be. Otherwise, it's just it's narcissism. But the, the writer shares part of them. They put it on the paper. A reader picks that up and brings all of their thoughts, experiences, beliefs to the page as they, as they read those words. And um, it's, it's a sort of alchemy that happens between what the writer presents and what the reader takes from that book, from that poem, from that right. novel, from that screenplay. And then I think it's magical. It's, it's, that's why I write. Is, uh, I've had folks come up and, and, and offer me interpretations of things that I've written that, that were not considered at all while I was writing it. <laughs> right. And, I, and I, I think that's magical because that's how we create new ideas. P.W. Covington is a writer, poet, and performer. We were happy to catch up with him literally on the road as we celebrate the life of Jack Kerouac and road stories on this particular episode of Word. P.W. Covington, we wish you safe travels and hope you get back home to Albuquerque safe. Thanks for coming to Word. Oh, thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. You can find out more about P.W. Covington's work by visiting our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. Listen to KJZZ as you work and play around the house with your smart speaker. This is Ophira Eisenberg from Ask Me Another. Hey, I'm Alex and host of Reveal. I'm Glenn Washington. This is Ira Glass of This American Life. Bring the radio into your family room and never miss a minute of your favorite weekend shows. Just ask your smart speaker to play KJZZ and get a news update and weekend entertainment right at home. Just tell your smart speaker to play KJZZ. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ. With true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. One hour, 25 minutes, distance, 11.74 miles, average pace, 7 minutes, 14 seconds per mile. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. 
That was the sound from a travel app tracking the progress of Carlos Acido as he rode his bicycle on a summer evening in Camp Verde where he lives. Carlos is a shy yet outgoing and inspirational sixth grader who was born in Phoenix with a congenital amputation of his right foot. He received his first prosthetic when he was still an infant. I caught up with him earlier this month via Skype and wanted to know about his future plans for a long-distance bike ride from his home to Albuquerque, New Mexico next year. I began by asking how he is preparing for that journey. Riding around like training and getting a new bike and new pedals and just riding around and see how far I can go every day. What's the most miles that you've been able to ride in, a, in one day so far? 31. Wow, that's pretty impressive. How many hours was that? Like two. Just straight, no breaks? No, we had breaks. Uh-huh. And so you're trying to set up this trip. You live in Camp Verde, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how far is it from Camp Verde to where you want to travel into New Mexico? Um, Like Albuquerque, like 400 miles. Wow, that's a long trip. And I assume you've been thinking about this for a long time. What is it about this particular trip that is special to you? Why did you want to try to travel to New Mexico? Because the person who made my first prosthetic is there, so I'm going to go visit her. And so that's the purpose of the trip then is just to go from Camp Verde to Albuquerque. Do you have any idea? I mean, just based on your current pace right now and, you know, you're trying to do things day by day by day, do you have any idea how long it might take you to complete that journey? Like a week. So who's going to go along with you? Are you going to be followed by your parents in a vehicle? Um, are you going to have a riding mate? Me and my dad are going to go and then my mom. And I think a team is going to follow us behind. We're going to be staying at hotels and camping. That sounds and like a, a lot of fun. When are you going to actually start the trip? In May. So May of next year. And you think it'll take you about a week. What types of things are you doing in, in preparation? Um, are there other exercises that you need to do besides just hopping on your bike? No. I just ride my bike and just go as far as I can. And how do you keep your mind and your spirits in good check? Uh, because it's not easy, obviously, to bike 31 miles. I don't think I could do that myself. I don't know. It just feels good. You know, you forget about your day and just start writing. You just kind of free your mind and, and celebrate the ability to live life uh, on the road, if you will. Yeah. So, Carlos, tell me about some of your other interests. Um, what grade are you in school? Six. What do you like, subject matter-wise? Um, P.E., math. And lunch. P.E., math, and lunch. Well, those two things, P.E. and math, I think, kind of go right along with what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, obviously, you've got to calculate mileage and, you know, how far you can try and get in a day. And certainly with P.E., physical education, you're boosting your physicality out of this. If there is somebody out there that is dealing with a similar situation like you, uh, who has a prosthetic uh, or maybe needs to be fitted for a prosthetic, maybe not necessarily their leg, um, what advice, what message would you like to tell them? Then do what you want to do. If you try hard enough, you can do it. That sounds like great advice, Carlos. Well, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you, and we will give folks the ability to follow your story on our own website. Carlos, thanks so much for talking with me briefly. All right. Thank you. I wanted to get a bit more background on Carlos, so I also spoke with his mom, Priscilla Carbajal, via Skype. She's originally from Phoenix, and she and the family moved to Camp Verde about five years ago. They're not sure what caused it. They're not sure if the foot didn't fully form or if it was caused by amniotic bands. Um, but that's the way he was born. I didn't have any idea what was going to happen until he was born. And um, he was fit with his first prosthetic when he was about 10 months old. And he started walking when he was about a year and a half. And every year he gets fit for a new one. It doesn't hold him back in the slightest. He's an active kid. He's the most active kid that I know. He loves all kinds of sports. 
But yeah, that's basically what it is. It's just a congenital amputation. And he's got his leg all the way down to his ankle. And then so on the right foot, that's the only piece he doesn't have is his right foot. I see. Yeah. And just by looking at the Facebook social media site, yeah, active is an understatement for Carlos. He's really inspiring. And it seems to me like this is just kind of second nature to him. Does he ever surprise you? I mean, obviously he's your child, so you're proud of him, but does he ever surprise you? Not anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> he's so active that nothing surprises me since he was little, even before he could walk, he was climbing up things and, and it surprised me when he was first born. I was worried that, you know, I didn't know what his limitations were going to be. Um, but once he started walking, nothing held him back. He was crawling up on top of everything he could find. And as, as he got a little bit older, when he was about, I want to say about four is when he learned how to ride a bike. And at first the physical therapist had got him a tricycle and it had like a strap. So his prosthetic, you know, he could learn how to control the pedal with his prosthesis. And he outgrew that within a couple of months and went straight to a regular bike with no training wheels. And he was just go, go, go. And his dad is the same way. So he gets that from his dad. (laughs) Yeah, he, he loves to swim. He loves to hike. He loves to bike. He loves to run. He's awesome. Nothing he does anymore surprises me. The sky is the limit for that kid. Well, it sounds like a perfect match for the state of Arizona. You know, obviously, we love to hike. We love to bike. Uh, we love to swim, certainly when it's uh, the hotter months out. What would you say to parents who find themselves in this position, you know, with a newborn, uh, and they're sort of looking at life choices ahead? What kind of experience from your own background would give them some advice, perhaps? Uh, don't limit them on anything. Don't ever make them feel like it's something that can hold them back. Treat them just the same as every other kid, and that's what they'll believe, that they're the same as every other kid, and they'll accomplish everything that they want to. That's a great piece of wisdom. Thank you so much for this okay. opportunity. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Best of luck to you. You can find out more about Carlos's Camino, or journey, by visiting our website at word.kjzz.org. If you have a suggestion for a future episode of Word, or you just want to hear our archive, you can visit the same site. Feel free to link us on social media. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Maxidon. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word from the KJZZ Studios in Tempe, Arizona. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org.